I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending March 5th. In today's program, we're going to take a good close look at Amazon. One of our guests today is Robin Gaster, a policy expert and the author of the new book, Behemoth, Amazon Rising. We talk about what makes Amazon stand out even among other enormous technology companies, why people are calling for the company to be broken up, and whether or not Amazon should be broken up. Also, when most of us listen to music today, we're listening to some truly poor quality audio. Qualcomm is offering to do something about that. We talk with Qualcomm's Jim Chapman, the company's vice president and general manager for voice, music, and wearables. Before we get to either of those stories, here's a quick rundown of some of the top articles we have in EE Times this week. We've been following the story of Boeing's 737 MAX, which in the last two years was involved in not one, but two crashes. We've got an article on the federal government's final report, which says that deregulation of the airline industry led to insufficient oversight by the Federal Aviation Administration, which led to the two crashes. MIPS Computer Systems was one of the original innovators in RISC technology, RISC being reduced instruction set computing. But the company's fortunes waned, it got bought out, and then eventually folded into another company called Wave Computing, which last year filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Wave is out of Chapter 11, it has renamed itself MIPS, and it's going to become a RISC-V specialist. We've got the story. Also, semiconductor manufacturer Marvell is joining an initiative managed by Facebook to build open radio access network equipment. Open RAN technology promises to make it easier to build and operate 5G wireless networks. We've also got articles on a new approach to performing AI calculations at low power, one about new chip interconnect technologies, another on new LIDARs, and we have an examination of the politically complicated market for rare earth elements, which are critical for products such as smartphones and laptops. Those and other stories at www.eetimes.com. If you're on our podcast webpage, there are links on your left. Technology has frequently altered how music is produced and distributed, but recently it also fundamentally changed how music is consumed. Not that long ago, people who enjoyed listening to music were likely to have a rack of audio equipment with sizable speakers that could fill a fairly large room with music, and that system would reproduce the music with pretty good fidelity. People actually purchased music transferred to various media, LPs, tapes, CDs, that's changed. Now, the majority of listeners consume music accessed through a subscription service and streamed through a small device, probably a smartphone, sometimes a smart speaker, and they're more apt to listen using headphones or earbuds. Now, none of the equipment involved today is likely to have been engineered to support high-fidelity reproduction. There are any number of hiccups that could compromise sound quality that can occur in the wireless connections between cell tower and phone, and also between phone and earbuds. Those hiccups include latency. Qualcomm is fluent in pretty much all of the common wireless protocols. Its products, meanwhile, are commonly found in smartphones, 
and in some smart speakers and in some earbuds, which means its technology spans much of the modern audio equipment chain. It has devised a technological system it calls Snapdragon Sound, a set of proprietary software and hardware technologies designed to optimize wireless quality in the entire audio chain from HD content delivery to mobile phones to earbuds. The aim is to support high-fidelity sound while avoiding many of the problems inherent in wireless handoffs that can compromise audio quality. Global editor Junko Yoshida recently spoke with Jim Chapman, Qualcomm's vice president and general manager for voice, music, and wearables, about Snapdragon Sound. What motivated you to develop the Snapdragon Sound? Can you explain? Now, where we think we should get to uh, and what consumers are demanding is they're saying, look, we've got these wireless earbuds. We love them. We're using them a lot. We need to rely on them. It, it, it's not good enough to say you've got some wireless earbuds and that's okay. You know, look at me. I'm great. No wires. But we've moved way beyond that. Consumers mm-hmm. are saying, I'm buying these things and I'm using them on my conference calls, to listen to my videos, to talk to my parents, to talk to my kids. Mm-hmm. I, I they have to work and they have to work really well and they have to work every time I use them, wherever I use them, however I want to use them. Right. They really want the reliability of that wired connection wirelessly. So they want, you know, no impediment to getting great quality audio. Yeah. They want no impediment to latency. They, 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 don't have to, they don't expect to have to compromise on latency and they certainly don't expect to have any glitches or drop calls or anything like that because of the wireless audio. Right. So we've taken that to heart and we're looking now at introducing Qualcomm Snapdragon Sound, which is an optimized chain of technologies, really, uh, and software that enables seamless and immersive audio all the way across mobile devices and wireless audio accessories. Now, that's quite a mouthful. What do we really mean? Um, if you... If you try to get best audio by only looking at an earbud or only looking at a phone, mm-hmm. uh, you can get so far, but you can't get the whole way. If you really want to do the best job, you need to kind of take the system as a whole and say, okay, I've got audio coming from my phone all the way through the phone. There's many layers of software out over a wireless link and all the way through the earbud. And I have to optimize that. Now, what can I do when I optimize that? Qualcomm's in a great position, right? Because we mm-hmm. have silicon and software in the phones you've got silicon and software in the earbuds we can do that optimization problem what do we get when we do it well we have to go through the mobile technologies we have to go through all the processing connectivity we have to go through all the audio video technologies there's a lot of stuff in in these platforms to kind of go optimize but when we do it we find that we can deliver reliably super crisp high definition quality audio we can deliver a much more robust connection, a much more robust solution for people. Mm. We can deliver an ultra-low latency that makes you know, gaming and, and movie watching and conference calling much more uh, pleasurable, much more reliable, much more uh, usable, I think. Mm-hmm. We can improve the user experience and we can do all of this at uh, a, a, a kind of a long battery life, a low power that Qualcomm for a long time has been known for. We spend a lot of time making sure we're optimized for that. Okay, now this may sound old-fashioned, but I used to cover things like MPEG audio and MPEG video. In those days, of course, bandwidth was a gating factor. It was very limited. 
So the industry needed the standard to deliver the best possible compressed audio. And that opened the door to so many different participants in different industries to get on the MPEG bandwagon. Now, what you're doing is admirable here, but um, you're also asking people to get on the Snapdragon bandwagon or else, because, you know, essentially what you're proposing here is uh, still a walled garden. So, yes and no. I think when we view this, um, we're still very focused on standards. We want the standards to be successful. Um, the problem is we want consumers to get the best possible experience, and we can't do that without going over and above the standards. So we support the standards and everything that we need to within those standards, and we do the best, and we spend a lot of time doing the best possible job we can at those. And we, you know, we sell to our OEMs based on our performance against those standards, and in many cases. But as we found, you know, we we are leaving quality on the table unless we allow ourselves to go a bit further. So effectively, yes, we're still very, very committed to standards. But um, if we feel we can do better, a standards plus, we will absolutely go there. Still committed to standards, but we can get some of these improvements out much more quickly. If you go through a, a normal standards body, it could take years to get some of these changes through. And I think it would be unfair to kind of hold the consumers back for another three, four years to get it through a standards body when we can deliver it to them today. So it's it's standards plus is how I think of it. It's everything we can possibly do with the standards. And we're, we're very, very committed to getting those standards as good as we possibly can. But and, and, until a standard gets there, uh, we think we, we should, as Qualcomm, be doing the best we can, not kind of ignoring it until the standard catches up. Okay. Fair enough. But here's the thing. Assume I'm a company A that competes with you. I also play in the mobile handset world and make my own radio chip and maybe application processors just like you guys do. But I like what Qualcomm's done with Snapdragon Sound. Can I license your Snapdragon Sound in software? Is that a play you have in mind? So today, you you would struggle to do it in software because there are hardware changes as well. So I think I think that's one of the things you see. Um, in order to get this level of capability, you have to go and change things in the silicon and in the software. That's what we've done. Now, the way you roll that out to everybody else is is at some point via standards. Uh, but they take a long, long time. And as, as I said, what we're doing with Snapdragon Sound here is making sure that whilst we do everything we possibly can with standards, where we feel we can do better, we're doing a standards plus and adding on on top of it. And that's what Snapdragon Sound is. It, in order to allow, enable a competitor with Snapdragon Sound, we would have to effectively give them um, an awful lot of IP, not just software, but silicon as well. And it, 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 what would end up happening is the competitor would effectively buy our chip <laughs> and then sell it. And I, and, I, and I mean, it could happen, but I'm not sure it's going to work. <laughs> All right. Now, earlier in our conversation, you described from mobile phones to earbuds as the initial, as the initial applications for uh, Snapdragon Sound. But down the line, of course, you are planning to apply this new scheme, Snap, Snapdragon Sound, to many different devices, I'm, I assume. For example... I'm currently looking for a new computer to buy. 
If I choose a laptop that isn't enabled by Qualcomm Snapdragon Sound, are you saying that I won't be able to have this better voice quality Qualcomm is promising with the Snapdragon Sound for Microsoft Teams meeting that we're having now? Is that right? You're right. You make a very good point. And I think over time, the 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 kind of um, the, the ubiquity of audio, I mean, it, it comes in so many places, means that, um, you know, the, the applicability of Snapdragon sound is actually very wide. You can imagine over time it coming to, um, X, you know, AR, XR, VR devices, laptop PCs, maybe even automotive. I mean, you can see any number of places where the ability to deliver better quality audio would have great value. Um, I think the good news is that Qualcomm, you know, is a significant player in many, many of these segments. And so we do have the opportunity to roll out Snapdragon sound more widely. But as you say, you know, right now at launch, we're focused on the phone and the earbud because those two devices are where the majority of audio is consumed today. Over time, I think you will see us try and push it more widely. That was Jim Chapman of Qualcomm. The timing of Snapdragon sound is hardly random. Pretty much all music available today has been digitally compressed in a manner that sacrifices quite a bit of sound quality. Streaming audio services are beginning to offer higher quality audio, usually calling it high def or HD or lossless. Last September, Amazon introduced Amazon Music HD. Title also went HD in 2019. Earlier this month, Spotify announced plans to begin offering lossless streaming later this year. Most expect Apple to eventually follow suit. We here at EE Times will keep an ear out for you. Some of the most innovative technology companies in recent years, companies such as Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon have overturned entire industries and have had huge effects on society and culture. In the process, they have grown into enterprises much larger than anyone has ever seen before. These giants tend to boast about how transformational they are, but transformation has no intrinsic value. Any transformation can be good, bad, or indifferent. And, as it so happens, not everyone is pleased with all of the transformations these companies are creating. Governments around the world also believe some of these companies are abusing their power and they're trying to induce some of these giants to change some of their behaviors. Some critics say these companies will never agree to behave. It's time to break them up. There's a case to be made that among these supergiants, Amazon is unique and uniquely powerful. In fact, our guest today, Robin Gaster, makes that case. Gaster's expertise is in technological innovation. Years back, he worked for Congress's Office of Technology Assessment. He then consulted for several prominent think tanks, several national governments, and the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. He started a couple of his own businesses, and lately he's been running his own consultancy called Incumetrics. His latest book is Behemoth, Amazon Rising, subtitled Power and Seduction in the Age of Amazon. We talked to Gaster earlier this week about why Amazon is different, what it's up to, whether we should just let it do whatever it wants, and if we shouldn't, what we could possibly do about a company that has more revenue than the gross domestic product of some countries. Why, uh, when you have uh, a a whole 
palette of enormous, giant, far-reaching multinationals like Google, like Microsoft, like Apple. Um, what is it about Amazon that you found particularly fascinating or, or singular? You know, when I when I started, I was just sort of interested. I mean, I had done uh, a bunch of previous work on the gig economy, and I and I kept bumping into my Amazon driver and finding that actually he was part of the gig economy. He wasn't actually employed by Amazon, um, so I, I got interested um, in thinking about how Amazon, after all, became what it is. I mean. You know, the, in a certain sense, the other companies sort of, you know, have, have kind of stayed within their lane. I mean, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Facebook started as a social network, and it's still a social network. And Google, you know, landed on, on the search algorithm, and there it is still. You know, IBM made computers. They're still in the computer business. But Amazon is not at all like that, right? It's not mm -hmm. as a tiny bookstore. And, and I do not believe anybody, including Bezos, could have predicted anything like where, it, where it's gotten to now. So, so there's an extraordinary story there. That's not, that's not an accident, I don't think. I mean, I, I, you know, there have been many moments when things tip their way in different, in different dimensions. That's okay, fine. But this, it, there's just too much there. You don't become a $400 billion company in 25 years by accident. It doesn't happen. So, so then I thought, oh, well, okay, I better figure it out. Yeah. So the realization um, that, that Bezos or, or the Amazon organization um, seems to have come to is that uh, they're not just booksellers. They are... Uh, akin to the notion that like the, the old railroad companies thought of themselves as railroad companies and, and their comp competition said, no, you're in transportation. You just didn't realize it. Um, is there a, uh, is there an analogous realization um, by Bezos or, or the Amazon organization that there's something, they, they are something more than just, a a retailer or distributor oh sure they've never seen themselves as a retailer mm. i mean bezos is you know bezos pounded on this years and years ago that that they were a technology company they were an innovator and above all that i mean their their mission statement is very simple we are going to be the most customer-centric organization on earth that's it and if you think about the implications of that, there are no boundaries to that, right? I mean, there's nothing in there that says we're even going to be a transportation company. I mean, transportation is a big sector, but not big enough for Amazon, right? Amazon could fulfill that mission in education, in healthcare, in finance, anywhere. So there's no, there is no end to the ambition. They were one of the earlier companies to recognize the need for open systems and open technologies not being locked into vendors um, and opening their systems to their partners and customers and and that's in part the impetus for for what turned into AWS 
Um, can I get you to kind of talk about just the, you know, quick historical yeah. evolution of how that happened? Well, it happened because Amazon's own electronic in, internal systems were, were nearing collapse. Uh, you know, Amazon was growing very, very fast uh, early on, and they had a, initially a unitary um, code base. You know, so if you wanted to introduce something new, you had to get into the code base and make a change somewhere. And as the code base got larger and larger and Amazon's am ambitions expanded, um, this, this just became untenable. At, at the point that they started building AWS, they had taken on the task of running the e-commerce sites for Borders and Toys R Us, mm -hmm. right? So you just think, how do you do that with a unitary code base? Are you going to replicate it three times? And every time you make a little change somewhere, you've got to run off and do it somewhere. I mean, it just seemed, you know, in, impossible. And they had, um, you know, they had some innovative people there and they segregated them far from the from from HQ and um, told them to go off and, and and find a solution to this problem and modularization and the cloud was their solution once they had done it for themselves they eventually actually quite quickly realized that there was huge demand for this cheaper more agile faster um, yeah. uh, more flexible you know yeah. so you know, they, it it grew from that, but it wasn't it wasn't that they invented AWS to sell to other people. It, Amazon was their first and best customer for a very long time. Amazon <laughs> is enormous, yeah. and um, there's already some sentiment uh, that it's too big, um, and uh, it, it, Google as well, Facebook as well. Yeah. Um, you could go after them on antitrust, but as you explain in the book, that's difficult because of the way antitrust um, uh, law has developed over the last 20 years, 25, 30 years or so. Um, you, you suggested some remedies that might not include, might not need to be antitrust. You were talking about, uh, let me get this right, a, a digital platform regulator. Yeah. And you set down a set of principles uh, that you felt um, should be applied. Uh, can can I get you to discuss those? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the, 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 one of the main um, sort of knocks on antitrust is that it just takes too long. I mean, if, and I think it's actually unlikely, they, they end up going after Amazon for antitrust, Okay, so maybe you could get near settlement in eight years, 10 mm -hmm. years, something like that. It's not the same company. I mean, it would not be operating the same way. All the practices that you would be complaining about, many of them would have been left behind years before. So it, this, this is a sort of 19th century model for dealing with digital 21st century companies, and it, it just doesn't work. Mm. So instead, you have to be much more proactive. And you have to enlist your allies if you want to actually regulate. If you want to, if you want to make sure that Amazon is not self-dealing, is behaving better. I would 
I, you know, people ask me what do I want, and I can say, well, what I want is the Amazon I want, not the Amazon I got. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to break up. I don't want to break up Amazon. Amazon is great. They deliver stuff to me when I need it. It's fabulous. It's an extraordinary service. They do new things all the time. Fabulous. I don't want to break that up. I just want them to behave better, yeah. and you know, behave better with their workers and with their with their um, sellers. With their partners, there are lots of places where Amazon just doesn't behave very well. Yeah, and it's because they're obsessive. They, they, you know, they have a vision of themselves as this uh, white knight of the customer, and anything that they do for the customer is, by definition, a good thing, regardless of any other consequences. And they're too big for that now. It's not. It's you know. It's just not acceptable. They have eight hundred thousand employees. So, and that's not counting all the non-employees who they who work for them. The, the, yeah, the pseudo employees, the that's contract right. workers, the gig that's workers. Right. That's right. So, so okay. So, how do you manage this in a world where antitrust is not very good? Mm -hmm. I think that that there really the secret is in two places. One is to put together well three places. You need agreement on what constitutes good behavior. Mm -hmm. We need to go back over it. And it's not enough just to say, well, they treat their customers well. They, they, we need a much more detailed code of conduct, if you like, for digital companies. The second thing is you need some kind of enforcement mechanism. So you need a digital regulator that has enough technical chops to understand what is going on. Mm -hmm. You know, the, Recruiting, you know, old-fashioned regulators from Wharton Business School is not going to cut it. Uh, you know, Amazon has ten thousand people working on Echo and Alexa. If you want to understand what's going on over there, you need to put some weight and power behind it. And I think that that regulator should be funded entirely by uh, fees from the industry. No reason not to. They got plenty of money. Um, and the third thing, which is the most radical part of this, is we have to demand information. It's not enough for them to do an annual report which says virtually nothing. We need access in real time to real information about how they manage their business. And there is a model for this. This is the utility model. You know, mm -hmm. when, when utilities, which are monopolies, want to raise rates, they have to provide detailed information to regulators, how much they're paying for this and that and the labor costs, where the money is going, and what they plan to do, all of this stuff. Now, I don't want Amazon to be regulated like a utility. I don't think that's in our interest. It would stifle them too much. But the information side of it is a different business. I think once you get to the size of these companies or big companies generally, I'm quite happy to be a... To, to take this model elsewhere. But if you, if you come get to a certain size, wh why do we believe that everything they do should be secret? Mm -hmm. this, this comes from the original formation of companies with the East India Company in England in, in the 17th century, right? We started with this presumption that it should be private. I think now if you're that big, no, actually, you're in, you should not be private. Why should you and I be
be walking naked across the digital plane, exposed to every freaking company in America because they can peer into our, our various entry points. And, and yet they get to be completely secret. It's ridiculous. Some of the places where Amazon seems to be going, um, yeah. you, you touched on that a little bit with, uh, with the acquisition of Whole Foods. Um, in our conversation prior to the beginning of recording, we were talking about uh, all the things it could potentially get into when yeah. you're customer centric, that could mean healthcare. Yeah, um, I, I think healthcare is, is, is likely a very big focus there now. It, if you think about all the thing, different things they're doing. So, you know, they bought PillPack, so they have mm-hmm. that. They've opened Amazon Pharmacy, so they have that. Um, they've opened Amazon Care, which is their primary care um, pilot. I call it a pilot. It's a service that they offer in their warehouses and their offices. They build these little primary care facilities. And if you think about it, it makes it's it's kind of like what they're doing in healthcare is kind of like um, what they're doing in AWS. So they're starting with the base layer, which is the primary care, which is the easiest, in a certain sense, the easiest part to do. They have a captive population of nearly a million people to try out their experiments on, see if it works, to find out if they can cut costs, improve outcomes, and and eliminate efficient inefficiencies and healthcare is filled with inefficiencies in the US. I mean, it, it is a, you know, disastrously badly organized place. It's ideal for digital transformation. Uh, so you can imagine Amazon absolutely getting in there. And once in, once they figure out how to do personal care through in the home through Alexa, which they're clearly doing, and they just released Halo, which is their monitoring device for healthcare in the home. Uh, you know, the whole primary care package in the home, in the local clinic, online through Amazon Pharmacy, it's all those pieces are fitting together. It seems very clear to me. And it makes sense. And then one can imagine them moving up the stack, just like they do in AWS, moving to the higher value things. So one could imagine specialized clinics or different parts of the channel that they want to cannibalize. I know, for example, that they're very interested in B2B um, inside healthcare, right? That would be another place where you can bite off a piece. So that's one side. That's healthcare. I think that's absolutely coming. Do I welcome it? Well, kind of. I mean, would you like as a customer to have Amazon being your healthcare provider? Not sure I want to be a provider inside it, but as a customer, yeah, probably. Uh, <laughs> you don't look convinced. Uh, you know, I, well, I, I don't look convinced because I just, I just don't it, trust yeah. one company that know. knows, that controls so much. Well, and and one and a next natural, absolutely natural step would be insurance. Mm-hmm right? Health insurance, because they would have all the data. Robin Gaster's book, Behemoth, Amazon Rising, is now available at fine bookstores everywhere. You can also get it, fittingly enough, through Amazon.com. 
And that is it for the weekly briefing for the week ending March 5th. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at www.eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with the links to the stories we mentioned. This podcast is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week. What were the last things that you personally bought from Amazon? And what were the last couple of things you watched on Amazon Prime? Oh, that's a good, those are good questions. Uh, last couple of things I bought from Amazon would be a couple of electronic cables. Uh, those are, you know, there's nowhere really to buy them around here anymore. But I buy a lot of things from Amazon. Amazon's, you know, Amazon is really a great provider. I, I, and what did I watch most recently on Amazon Prime? It's hard to remember amongst all the different services. Oh, I think The Expanse. Okay. Yeah, which I liked. I thought The Expanse was great. Me too. Absolutely fantastic. So what does that say about you? Does that say that uh, you're more of a nerd than you realized? Oh, I'm a nerd without math. (laughs) You know, you can only get so far in being a nerd without math, I think.